Who would win? The entire engineering might of the Honda Motor Company or eight dudes in a German shed? Welcome back to Motorsport 101. They don't call it the Honda Motor Company for nothing? Question mark? Uh, maybe the Calyx <laughs> chassis company. Yeah, maybe maybe that works. Hey gang, welcome to episode 441 of Motorsport 101. I'm your friendly neighborhood host, Stray Harrison, and uh who boy, welcome to a very special event here at Motorsport 101 Towers because we are, I guess, celebrating the 1000th MotoGP race weekend. Good, good, good luck breaking that one down on the stat count as to what counts as a MotoGP race and what doesn't. Um, I'll let the boffins work that one out. But uh, they celebrated the 1000th Grand Prix this weekend. And what better place to do it than uh, Le Mans? And uh, wow, <laughs> a world record attendance for a MotoGP race over the weekend. Two hundred. 278,000. My uh, God. Over the course were we of the just having Were we just having crisis debates about form, about MotoGP attendance like months ago? The right. French love their bikes. The French do love their bikes. So, uh, this, generally speaking, Le Mans facilities are shit, but they have the best promotions team in the sport. In fact, they actually collected an award before the race started last year for the best race of 2022. I don't think best in terms of race quality, but best is in terms of, you know, organization, promotion, all of that stuff. Because, yeah, 278,000 over the weekend. Fabio Quartararo had 10,000 fans in the pit lane waiting for him on Thursday. Thursday! Lewis was sending me pictures from from the director's boxes and uh, and I I was startled at the amount of people. Half of the MotoGP pit lane was there just to see Fabio to get selfies and autographs. He is a genuine mainstream celebrity in France now. It is wild. They had 116,000 on race day, which is crazy. You could hear the French crowd chanting for Fabio half an hour before the race had even started. Um, for atmosphere, it's right up there now with Mugello as maybe the blue ribbon event of the year now, which is crazy given that we would often call Mugello biking Mecca for many, many years, and Le Mans might have just found a way to surpass it in the last Whoa, now. We're, we're going to get some emails from the people at Assen. Uh, uh, that's... Fair enough. I mean, kind of in the same boat over there, but yeah, Lamar. Lamar always draws a crowd, especially when you've got a uh, French superstar. Shame about the bike. Shame about the bike. Uh, I, I literally joked in our race review I put up on the website motorsport101.com regarding that this weekend that uh, the tagline was, this is the only time I'm going to mention Fabio Quadrara in this piece. Kind of says it all. Um, <laughs> because he was... Just there this weekend. Um, it was it was a, a race weekend where a lot of other people stole the headlines, whether it be Francesco Bagnaia, um, for all the wrong reasons, which we'll get into, for Jorge Martin for dominating the sprint, um, or Marco Bezzecchi, who all of a sudden is only a point off the championship lead again after a horrible Haref weekend. Why not Bez will be a predominant feature in this weekend's run-in. We'll also talk about Mark Marquez. Yes, he's back again. And once again, he found a way to stole the show. 
even though he didn't actually finish. It's going to take some explaining. We'll get to that later. We'll also talk about my new segment on this show called Stewards Watch, because can anybody run a motorsport event right these days? Although I must admit, spoiler alert, I actually think Freddie Spencer was all right on this one. More on that later. I, I, I know. I'm, I'm shocked as much as you are. Um, please, and, please send your complaints to uh, yeah. whichever one of our email addresses you feel like sending them to. Masses exactly. of the public. And uh, we'll be talking about some of our favorite MotoGP memories as, as the sport celebrated 1,000 Premier Class races this weekend. Now, we are recording this on uh, Wednesday, May 17th. Um, before we address a couple of things real quick. First and foremost, if you're expecting a Formula E Monaco podcast, apologies about not having one for you. Yeah. We were doing the set list creatively for it, and we just kind of felt it was going to be very, very similar to the Berlin episode, minus the environmental shenanigans. Um, it was a fine it's race. Funny. Yeah, yeah, it was fine. It was totally fine. Like, if you get two identical races like that, you're in good shape. The problem is, like, we didn't know what to do with it. So we're sorry about that, but we will be catching up here soon. Yeah, like, we'll get back to that after Formula E summer break. Um, yeah, Nick Cassidy is good at the, is good at the race cars. Who knew? Um, told you. Fucking told you. Uh, <laughs> uh, large appendage mendage is uh, on fire at the moment. And, and the country of New Zealand is on fire. Four consecutive wins now in Formula E. As, as a state, you love to see it. Um, so that's fun. Also, in not so fun news, uh, Formula One. Um, as it, as again, you've probably already heard it by the time you're listening to this. But the Emilia Grand Prix and the uh, the Emilia Romagna Grand Prix, made in Italy, um, at Emilia, just got cancelled this morning. Um, for those who haven't seen the news, there has been some horrific flooding. Um, in the region, uh, a seriously heavy amount of rainfall, um, multiple rivers bursting banks, you know, hundreds of people evacuated from homes. Uh, sadly, three people at least have passed away since then, according to Reuters, who reported on the story. Um, it, that number is probably set to go up, unfortunately. Um, Formula One decided this morning in a meeting with all the other stakeholders, the track promoters, the FIA, etc., that uh, it was the right thing to do to not host the race this weekend. Um, for those who may not be so sure about this one, I don't think it needs too much explanation, but I'll keep it brief. It, I don't think it's fair that a region who's already suffering a horrible natural disaster um, should have a Formula One race that drains even more of their local resources like helicopters, fire service, ambulances, and just resources as, as a whole to make sure a Grand Prix is held safely when there are greater problems afoot. Um, so I think I speak for everybody here when I say our best wishes to everybody affected in, in the Emilia-Romagna region. Um and uh, I, I hope everybody out there stays safe. I hope all the people that's traveled out there can get back home safely. And like I said, thoughts and prayers to the region because it's, it's a beautiful part of the world, and it's it's horrible to see the pictures and videos of the horrible environmental damage that's going on down there. I I, I don't think there needs to be too much more said than that. Um, yeah, 
it's just it's, it's crazy totally we've amazing. just we've just gotten so conditioned to like formula one doing the most cynical things for the sake of profit and making mm. sure their sport gets in at all cost and well this one was actually sensible although now we have to update our statement of what will actually get a formula one grand prix pulled or canceled it's war it's global pandemics and it's devastating floods yeah and i hate it yeah and um as to, to rightly put, I mean, they decided this fairly early. It was more or less a formality by Wednesday morning as of time of recording, May uh, 17th. All, all that really needed to happen was to run it by everyone, and everyone was in agreement that this race should not go on. Indeed. And, uh, yeah, just uh, just to, to clean up some of the, uh, the last details strong talk and i don't think it's been fully fully confirmed but uh almost certainly will not be replaced this year there are talks to maybe extend imola's current deal which goes until 2025 to add a year as a make good um considering what this was which was basically an act of god um so yeah we'll have to wait and see on the final details on that but uh this race will almost certainly not be replaced i mean if you look at the calendar right now and I and I did going into this podcast, there really isn't a whole lot of places you can put this Grand Prix again. The summer break is the, anything before the summer break is too close to call. Um, well, you know, I have a talk. Like, I like mean, with the summer break, um, yeah, you, you, you don't know. really want to you don't really want to mess with that because that's the shutdown period for exactly. for, for, the, for the teams and um, you know, as a lot of people that you know don't you know want that to be messed with and unfortunately no matter, between that point when we come back from the summer break for Zanfor, i believe it is mm-hmm. um between that and the end of the season if you plug another race in there somewhere is going to be a quadruple header and yeah like you can't do that you like we we can't be talking about how crippling this calendar can be on a humanitarian level and then talk about slotting a grand prix into a three-week block where there's already three races in four weeks and then making it a quadruple header that is absolutely Mm -hmm. insane um and I'm kind of glad that Formula One has taken the responsible decision. It's like, you know, we're just gonna not, just not going to run this race. So we are down to 22, um, and I don't think there's going to be too many complaints in the uh, grand scheme of F1 dialogue about that one. Um, but, yeah, that's one more time. Best wishes to everybody in the area, and, uh, you know, our thoughts and prayers are with them. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll be back next year. So... Without further ado, beyond the uh, general cleanup in every sense, in a, in a horrible sense and, and whatnot, should we talk about some bikes? I think we should talk about some bikes to lighten the mood a little bit. So yeah. after this, let's get into MotoGP's 1,000th Grand Prix, the French Grand Prix of 2023. Marco Bezzecchi rode the wave of chaos that struck MotoGP's 1,000th Grand Prix at Le Mans. He survived the early attack of Jack Miller's KTM, insert jackass riff here, and the collision between Francesco Bagnaia and Maverick Vinales. Both of them ended up DNFing as a direct result. He broke and he broke away from Marc Marquez and Jorge Martin to win by nearly five seconds. And with Pecco Bagnaia not finishing, stop me if you've heard that one before, 
It's a one-point game at the top of the title race between himself and Bez. So, in the esteemed words of poet Rory James O'Connell, why not Bez? Why not Bez? I put it out there at Argentina just surveying the landscape because at Argentina, Bezecchi had just won. Francesco Bagnaia had won Portugal, but he had uh, finished outside the points in Argentina, and uh, that seems to be a common trend with him. Brad Bender, also been inconsistent. Jorge Martin, a bit inconsistent. Johan Zarco, I'm just going off the top five on the board. You know, Zarco has never met a race that he just couldn't win in the end. And <laughs> presumptive title favorites, Anea Bastianini and Mark Marquez, spent a whole hell of a lot of time on the shelf. So if you look around the landscape and you realize that Yamaha's bike's not good, I, I just kind of threw it out there. You know, who, who stands a chance of winning a championship? Why not Marco Bezecchi if he's going to ride like this? And I know he's crash prone as well. I'm not saying that it, that's not the case. I mean, he put it on the floor and uh, and and ref, but yeah, I mean, you, you pretty much said. It. I mean, it, it's been so chaotic, despite the processional on track product, or even perhaps because of it, because of how valuable every pass and on track position is now. All these crashes and all, all of this inconsistency is keeping everyone in play. Absolutely. Um, and, I, I mean, in, in this case, is talk about Bez. I mean, Marco Bezecchi is goddamn brilliant. And even with last, last round stinker, I mean, it, he just seems to get a little better every race, a little bit more comfortable fighting up at the front. Um it's kind of telling that Pecco has uh, two point scoring finishes in the primary race, both of which happen to be wins, and he leads the title by a point. I think the stat is 47% of his points have come from the sprints. Yeah. <laughs> which is wild. This is some Kyle Bush type stuff. Yeah, it's it, Francesco Bagnaia, and it's not totally his fault because there's been a couple of these in, in the middle of his run that weren't on him, including this one. That he is becoming the ultimate win it or bin it rider, and <laughs> he literally either wins or crashes and and either retires or doesn't finish in the points. Yeah, the format is bailing Bagnaia out big time at the moment, like. It's, it, it is what actually I'm going to spend some time after this podcast, probably rescoring the table if it was just the Grand Prix formats that we had. But Banyaya openly admitted it himself. Like, like, if it wasn't for the sprints, he wouldn't be leading the championship right now. He, well, he would said, only have 50 he, points, right? <laughs> right. So he said it himself. Like, he wouldn't be leading if it wasn't for, for the sprint format. Um, also, I'd like to CC Brad Binder in this email straight away. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but um, it's it, it's funny about Bez, and I mean this in a good way, because if you, if you path the journey of Marco Bezzecchi's career, he was always overshadowed by one man on his climb up the ladder. And it's mentioned in the opening paragraph, it was Jorge Martin. Because they came up together roughly at the same time. Martin was known as this breakaway cowboy with absolutely relentless speed in Moto3. He was one of the few guys who could break a Moto3 field um, over his knee if he, if he was fully dialed in. And the only man who could often go with him was Marco Bezzecchi. Same thing happened in Moto2. Martin got the high-profile 
KTM seat. You know, won races in that class. You know, suffered COVID, which didn't exactly help his career progression either. But Bez was kind of in the background a little bit. In he was never really the the same Moto Two player that other guys in the academy was, like Francesco Bagnaia, who won a Moto Two World Title. Um, had a nine win season when Bagnaia won the title, and Bez was kind of in the background. And Andre, again, Andre, we kind of see it in like um, mm. like an NBA discourse right now, where it's like, what's the most the streets won't forget player up to this point. Marco Bezzecchi has been the most the streets won't forget motorcycle rider. Yeah, up he has. through the uh, up through all the junior classes. Only now, um, you know, he's emerging as the main title challenger just because in, in this whirl of inconsistency, he's been the least inconsistent. Right. It's <laughs> and even he's had Haref where he crashed he in the Grand Prix and um yeah he he's had bad weekends in his own right too and that's why yeah. i said not the most consistent but the least inconsistent because right. i think that really is the best description for this grid in 2023 it yeah. really is feeling a little like 2020 in that sense which if you, if you look at the nba playoff bracket and how their final four shook out oof. god help us all oh yeah it's it's it, it's a lot going on i mean and we're five rounds deep now into MotoGP, and this is like the first major checkpoint for the season because we get to Europe and you now start to get an idea about how the elite players in this in this field are starting to shake out. I am none the wiser, and I'm five rounds in. I guess that's kind of a good thing, but also kind of a bad thing at the same time where it's just like we, we get to this scenario where it's like, well, why not, Bess? And like... It goes to show you the theory of last year is still holding up well, i.e. last year's Ducati can still win with the right rider and the right setup because we saw it this time last year when Anea Bastianini, who was still riding for Grassini at that point, beat Bagnaia straight up and bullied him into crashing his bike chasing him a year ago. And a year on, we're seeing history repeat itself because now it's Bez with the Mooney VR46 crew on last year's Duke, who is good enough to win races and challenge and challenge. And, and I would love to see a Bez Banyaya face off with both of them with good setups and see where and see where it dials in because uh, that would be a fascinating matchup right now. I, I would, I would have loved. And man, I, I so wish uh, Bastianini was healthy at this stage. I I'm really still do. out. Yeah, the, the shoulder blade injury. It was a lot. It was a lot more gnarly than I think a lot of us would have yeah. liked to believe. Well, it's one of those things. On. It's that you in motorcycle riders are tough sobs. <laughs> they they, they build. They build these guys tough. Um. But even they've a got shoulder, pain tolerance. A, a shoulder blade is not something you can ride through. Just like, period. Um, it's it's too much of a risk to your health, to your greater health, and your greater mobility in that arm. Yeah, it's it's it, if he was riding on that with the amount of pain he'd be in, we could be talking permanent nerve damage oh, to his he arm. He wouldn't be able to ride. Yeah, he would have no power a, in the arm. Yeah, it would it be. Is, mm. Yeah, it'd be potentially career altering. Just one more point on this. Like, again, I want to revisit the point that, like, five years ago, this VR46 team under another name was out here just sucking up the crumbs of the MotoGP grivet as a video. They were willingly giving MotoGP rides to Christoph 
who pass on in oh, MotoGP rounds. <laughs> and, and now they are the best satellite team in the business and outperformed the factory on the day. Well, you see, this did become a little bit of a topic uh, after mm. the race. Um, Peko Banyaya has some thoughts on satellite bikes. Yeah, he he he, he sat down with, with, in a media interview, and MotoGP just so happened to be recording this. And I did see this first reported the day after the Grand Prix on Monday, but I wasn't sure how kosher the quotes were. Um, I, I actually, unfortunately, I lack Italian friends who are able to translate the quotes. But I did, like MotoGP this morning, put up the video already translated on their video pass site. Um, free if you've got a login for it, um, even if you haven't got the full account. Hi, Cam. Um, uh, <laughs> but, spare uh, change. Spare change. <laughs> we, we, could, we could write that off as a business expense. We really could. Yeah, sure. Yeah, tax evasion. Anyway, um, no, the money was just Nanomachines. rested in our accounts, etc. Um, no, what I was going to say is that the whole video was put up this morning, and Banny, I came out with a rather bold statement where he said he'd like to see the independent teams be six to seven tenths a lap slower to <laughs> mitigate some of these early race aggressive moves which when i heard that i hooted and hollered you know oh. I, I would i would prefer uh, you know i think i'll exchange what you said i think bold is the wrong word i think herve poncherol has a much more fitting title for it. That's bullshit. Was Hervé Poncherol's quote? <laughs> Wait. Uh, Wait. Yeah, no, no, no. That's the quote. <laughs> that, that, all, word for word. All what I'm Are saying we... is, is that, is that, is that Dorna knew exactly what, he, what, what they were doing when they posted that. Because that was a direct quote on MotoGP's own website. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Augusto uh, Fernandez finished fourth on the gas gas ATM tech what three, whatever you want to call nosebleed. it. <laughs> like, honestly, Hervé Poncherol was hooting and hollering so hard he stole Ziggo Sports' microphone and started interviewing them. Like, <laughs> I love uh, Hervé Poncherol. I'm the journalist now. <laughs> This is this is big vibes of like uh, Ric Flair taking the mic from me and Gene on an episode of WCW Nitro, and then just throwing off all of his clothes and throwing his shoes on the crowd. Oh yeah, <laughs> perfect. It's perfect energy. Yeah, like uh, it's like Poncherol's words do have some merit because not only is he te- you know tech free team principal, he's also president of the teams association, the IRTA. Um, and for what it's worth, in this camp, in the camp of Harrison, I fully agree with Uncle Hervey. Um, shut up, Banyaya. Um, like, what the it, fuck it, it are you incredible. talking about? <laughs> it, it is. Is it just me, or has Pecco been whining a bit this year? He's got um, no self-awareness, man. He's a great rider, but my dude, if you don't want to get beat by satellite riders, don't... Well, the thing is, his his crash was with a factory Aprilia, right? So that's that's besides the point entirely. But but I mean, but I mean more than that. Um, look, the, the, uh, he was what talking I'll say. about his bike being too good, right? Look, here's what I'll say: his initial lead up to that point, there was some validity to it. The, I I think it is true 
that everybody thinks they can win now. And that, yes, a lot Why not? Of, yeah, you know, why not? I mean, look, you're not an elite athlete in any sport if, if you don't think you can't win, right? You know, uh, on the other end of the coin, like, there is some validity to what Banyai said. I think that is a very true point. I also think that, yes, what he said was true to an extent when he talked about the fact that these incidents often happen early in a race. I think there is absolutely something to that. And then I would say the format of how we race is now rewarding aggression. I think there is something to that. But when he goes into talking about how the independents need to be six or seven temps a lap slower again, like, and he quoted the fantastic four, the, you know, the, Marquez, Pedrosa, Lorenzo, Rossi era of aliens that we had at the top of the sport when they were winning everything week in, week out. Uh, no. Um, no. No, no. I mean, because at that point, you had four competitive bikes, two, two of each from each Japanese manufacturer. You had Ducati um, eating crayons in the corner. Yeah. You had uh, Aprilia throwing up crayons in the corner. Yeah. And then a bunch of part spin bikes that were like whatever Yamaha and Honda would fish out of the dumpster to throw to their satellite teams. As RJ and, alluded and, to, Avintia back in the day before we had Marco Bezzecchi win multiple Grand Prix in the same season compared to last year, that was Avintia rocking two-year-old Ducatis trying to be competitive. And you're telling me you'd rather go back to those days than what we have now? It's no, no. It's, and, and and the thing is, one of the reasons why the bikes are so close together, and I'm practically going to paraphrase what David Emmett said on the matter. It's because Ducati themselves have created F1 light with MotoGP, making these bikes so aero dependent and so ride height device dependent that you know Ducati has a third of the grid. Um, excuse me, I've just been joined by Nigel, a, uh, a staunch Ducati supporter. It's like, what are you talking about me for? <laughs> Ask about me, fool. <laughs> um, and, well, if, if Peko doesn't like it, Tough. Ducati, well, Ducati can hand back all of their development. Because We've, they're the ones who uh, brought the sport into this scenario and then sold these incredible Desmo Sedicis to these customer teams. Well, when good people are working in this team and, and you put, when you have great engineers in these teams and you put great riders on these bikes and you sell everyone the best bike in the field, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, 40% of the field is now Ducatis. And even a year old Ducati is better than half the grid now. It's like, better than so, pretty much the rest of the grid. I mean, like, Francesco Bagnaia's greatest threat to the championship last year, especially in the second half of the year, was Enea Bastianini on the previous year's Duke. I thought his greatest threat to the championship was himself. Well, well that too. But, but you know, we, we've spoken at length about that. It, it's, it's more so, like, what is giving Bagnaia the opportunity to go out and be this quick? and fight for these titles is the same thing that's going to be his biggest threat and his biggest challenge. If he doesn't like that, he can go talk to his boss. Right. Like, Ducati are the reason why the sport 
has moved the needle in this direction. The ride height devices, the shapeshifters, opening Pandora's box on aerodynamics in this sport and generating downforce, you know. It's the classic Jeff Goldblum Jurassic Park 2 quote of, you know, not stopping to think about whether they should do this or not because you were so preoccupied of whether you could you never stop to think about whether you should yeah and that's where we're at as a sport right now and when and think about this is not all Ducati's fault the management of the sport at the highest level also has to take a fair amount of accountability here as well yeah because ultimately if you if you if you give these engineers a sandbox to play in, they're going to build some sculptures. Yeah, and no, like the, you let the genie out of the bottle. You realized you couldn't put it back in again when people found the way to make their bikes faster. Ducati went from going six years without a win to becoming the best bike in MotoGP in the space of half a decade. You know, you still, you, and we all know Ducati are Audi money, so they were able to easily spread that seed across the grid because they had the money and the resources to be able to do so. Everybody hopped on the wagon realizing Ducati was the best bike. And on top of that, even now, as a result of the way the sport has gone and the, the fact that the sport is now based on aerodynamics and dirty air, you're going to now get these situations where riders are going to be ultra aggressive in the first three laps of a race before their tires overheat because they know that is the best chance of being able to win. Look, I've criticized Jack Miller for the the way he rides a bike till the cows come home. He had the right idea at Le Mans by going all out attack in the first eight laps. I get it. I totally get it. Like it makes sense because that's the only way you can realistically win if you're a midfielder at the moment. <sighs> Completely agree on pretty much every count. And I mean if if you wanna if you wanna fix the problem, you could always replace the satellite Ducatis with satellite Hondas and satellite Yamahas. But if you are a customer team and your option is to buy the best bike. You're gonna go out and you're gonna buy the best bike. Hundred percent. It's, it's so crazy. Like, and I don't think that they will. But the thought that VR forty six would take take this wonderful Ducati satellite program that they've got going and just yeet it in the garbage because of Valentino's Yamaha ambassador role. The thought that that's a possibility <laughs> that makes your skin crawl. Yeah, right. but I mean, at the same time, you've it, it's a storyline elsewhere with the same two manufacturers where Ducati are so convinced that Martin will stay just because Yamaha stink. Yeah, Ducati openly said on like, the record. What, what, what are you, you going to do? And not use our bike? Yeah, like Ducati openly said on the record in response to rumors that the Yamaha might be going after Jorge Martin for their factory seat. Ducati said on the record openly, we don't think Yamaha will be able to put together a package to make it worthwhile. They said that on the record. <laughs> you're not you're not good enough for us to care about you taking a rider. And they're probably uh, right to think that. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Dude, that's that's so crazy. Should we talk about Mark Marquez? They don't call it Talents Engineering for nothing. All engines running, we're talking about speed. An actual tagline for the official Talents Engineering website. Hard not to talk about the race without talking about the return of Mark Marquez. In his first race back on the Talents-built Honda, he qualified second. 
on the weekend behind Francesco Bagnai. He finished fifth in the sprint and was in a dogfight with Jorge Martin for second place after leading a substantial chunk early on, only for Mark Marquez to crash a museum corner with just a lap and a half to go. Trey, what did you make of Mark Marquez's wacky, interesting weekend? The man's still box office. The man is still, by a country mile, the biggest needle mover in this sport. And it's not even close. I know people have spoken on Twitter about like what like MotoGP copy in Formula One and trying to get that same shot in the arm. You look at social media. Mark Marquez is that guy. He is like if 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 the sport was a car, Mark Marquez would be the engine, the chassis, the tires, the frame, the seats, maybe Fabio Quattararo's the headlights. Um, that's that's where this sport is at at the moment. It was his first race back in seven weeks. First one on a brand new Cadex. Immediately challenges for podiums. Like this was a feud shot in the arm for Honda. Who you know there is some genuine hope in that camp again. I mean, we, we, we've almost forgotten that Addix Rins won a race a month ago. But you know, you yeah, combine been for him since. <laughs> Dreadful. Um, <laughs> he crashed again during the Grand Prix. Um, but yeah, Rins won at Cota, and now Marquez, the prodigal son, has come back, seen the Calex, and he likes it. Um, the, the, he says it's a step in the right direction, which is a huge positive for a factory that needs to keep Marquez on side. Now, look, he crashed. He went a bit too hard going into museum, lost the rear, spun out from third place with a lap and a half to go. Have you ever seen a situation in MotoGP where someone has crashed a bike, they've gone back to the garage, and they've been given a stand innovation? They That's knew crazy. How, they knew how special that ride was. They, they knew, knew how much every, all of their success, barring one magical race from Alex Rins that is slowly trending to become an outlier. They know how much their success long-term hinges on this dude. All of it does. And I mean, Dre said pretty well. I mean, seven, seven weeks off the bike, off of any bike, because he hasn't really done anything besides uh, rehabbing his hand. Mm. Um, first time on the Calyx chassis. He likes it. He keeps it. He qualifies it on the front row. He gets fifth in the sprint. And, I mean, he looked like his old self pretty much 100% uh, this week. I mean, just tying the bike into knots, trying to make it go around corners. Oh, yeah. You could kind of see the crash coming because, look, the Calyx frame is clearly an improvement. It is not a silver bullet. No. Um, there is still clearly a lot of work for them to do. And now that they do have a full race's worth of data, at least from one bike, um, sorry, Johan. Ugh. They can kind of go from here. They they have a baseline now. But you could see the crash coming for a little while. I mean, the bike was completely out of control for like four or five laps prior. Yeah, he Marquez was doing 150%. What, yeah, he was going way beyond the limit trying trying to stay look. Let's not forget, we are talking about Jorge Martin here, one of the fastest dudes bike racing has ever seen in terms of raw, unbridled pace. 
like Martin is an incredibly talented rider. Like I know it's I know we rag on him a lot for blowing and crashing situations, but from a raw talent standpoint, Jorge Martin is incredible. Right? I, I need to I need raw to stress pace, this. He's as fast as anyone in this field. We Probably were just faster. talking about him overshadowing the man that we think might be the out new outside title favorite. Yeah. yeah. I mean, again, we've we've talked about in the last couple of years that if he just chilled the fuck out a little bit, he might do really well. And I mean, unfortunately, you can kind of say the same about Mark here, but Mark was having to pretty much break the bike in half to have it running where it was. I mean, he destroyed his bike to get it into Q2. Yeah, he, he um, sent it up the alley. He, he had a huge crash, and we, we, there was fears he'd already wrecked that Kedex chassis. Luckily, it was okay, but he sacrificed it into a gravel trap to get into Q2 automatically, and then he goes and qualifies on the front row. Hilarious. Um, yeah. but, but, I mean, where I look at it, though, is that if Mark had backed off a bit, he would have taken a quarter out of Banyaya's points lead. It's a shame. It's- and that's really what he needs to start. Look, in the short term, that bike probably can't win races. No, and that's, that's probably... Just, it's why I'm not... Yeah, it's why I'm not that... over the yeah. limit. It's why I'm not that critical about it, as I know a lot of people were screaming at Marquez to take the points. In fact, one of our members of our Discord server literally called him a fucking idiot for crashing with a lap and a half out. And I'm going to be real Wait, with who? you. Like... <laughs> It's not, it's not worth going into who, but, no, you know, exactly. the, the point but, of the matter is it's just like, you know, if if it did, if, he, if he wasn't going to, if he wasn't still that dude, why are you upset about him wrecking? Because you want to see him pull this off. Exactly. Yeah. Look, Mark Marquez is a man who has lived his career at 11. Uh, at, at, you know, he is the spinal yeah. tap of MotoGP riders. This dial goes all the way up to 11. He, That's he is what's the guy made him. who will climb yeah. out into the unknown and see what's there. And that's what enables him to put this still deeply flawed motorcycle in places it has no right to be. Look, yeah. only one Honda finished the race, and it was Takanakagami. Now, fair enough, he got ninth, but it was because six bikes ahead of him hit the deck. Yeah. Including Mark. It wasn't um, it, it was a it was a merit. flat it was a flattering Yeah, it was a flattering six. Oh my but but at that same time, he swing it back around, and there is at one hundred and fifty percent, which is what he looked like he was at on Sunday. And boy, was it working! One hundred and forty nine percent might be the better choice here, if it means that he starts taking points out because he has to start putting points on the board eventually. If we're talking about Marquez as a title contender, which I still think is lofty given he went into this weekend 80 points behind Banyaya, you could have taken a quarter of that out. But you've got to to win at some point because you know Banyaya will win seven or eight of these. Because he's like, you can't, like, taking the points sounds nice and all, but we were saying that about Fabio Quattararo last year. And what happened? He blew the biggest lead in MotoGP history. Not all on him. Like there were a couple of incidents in there that were not Fabio's fault, like like Aragon, for example, and just, that's just bad luck. But if if we are talking about Marquez as a title contender, like him playing conservative with this bike is not going to get him. I'm not saying to play conservative. I'm just saying don't crash. 
there has to be some sort of middle ground. This is me as like Marquez fanboy number one over here trying to say he I, has to strike a middle ground because eventually you have to finish a race at some point. See, the thing is, he can do it. The problem we know is, he can do it. It's that's, a, the, it's, that's the thing. The problem is, it's just been a very long time since he's been able to do that. Like, like I said, I said it when I wrote about it. I think the last time Marquez was genuinely in take the points was twenty sixteen, and that was a long, long time ago. And honest, the thing is, though, I do worry that that might not be enough, only because, well, how many times more is Banyai going to crash this season? We just don't know. And we all know if Banyai gets a clear run, there's probably about a seventy percent chance he wins. There is, but then so how do you beat? He's that? only finished. He's only finished two feature races without crashing the bike so far this year. But he's good enough in sprints, or it doesn't matter. Well, Mark for put now. the bike fifth for now. But as I say, is he get something on the board and see what you can work with? It's a hard one because, like like you said. Marquez has made an entire career out of taking chances that other riders have never been able to do. He talked about it himself. He said that, look, I'm not afraid to crash this thing. And this is a guy that... Oh, honey, honey, we know. We see it. We We have a decade. We have a decade of proof. This is a man who won a world title while crashing 27 times in a season. We know what Marquez is capable of. And we know that... His entire riding style is based around seeing where the limit is, going over it, and then riding up to that limit again. That's how he's gone about his business. And look, it's worked. <laughs> Anyone who's world it, champion, he's won eight world championships this way. It's also cost him three years of his prime. So there's there's different ways of skinning this cat. It might take an evolution of Mark Marquez, the rider, for him to get back on top of that mountain again. Because the we, sport is very different. We've seen that middle ground, though. We've seen that middle ground, and he's still practically unstoppable on that middle ground. The difference is that back then, the Honda wasn't great, but it wasn't this bad. No. Um, that might be too big a deficit for him to overcome this time, but the least he can do is rack up some good results and see what he can do with it. And that might be the way to go. And look, If he, uh, if he uh, starts racking up top fives in feature races, he's going to point the field to death because no one else can stay on the bike. I hope he's got the awareness to realize that because it would have been 16 comfortable points if he takes the third. Maybe even 13 for fourth, given that Zarko is only about half a second behind them as they That's were fighting. That's the thing. I think that there needs to be a point in his brain, and this point does not exist. That's why he is the way he is, and it's why he's been as successful as the way he is. It's is, why it's why people paint him as a as a crash or crash kind of rider nowadays because they don't remember what it was like when he was dominating the sport. Well, they also or they probably don't. remember well, so well, well they were just like, "God damn it, you're beating all my favorites! I can't wait to see your downfall." Well, they choose not to remember when Valentino Rossi was basically doing the exact same thing and again being incredibly successful with it. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen what Mark is capable of on the middle ground. Honda needs to step it the fuck up because the Calex, while an improvement, is not a silver bullet. They need more. They need more. And it seems like that more is beginning to trickle in. But, man, when, you're, when you've got an engineering empire for the ages, you know, a, a, a 
a company that has brought Formula One to its knees alongside Red Bull the last two years. And you just got out-engineered by eight dudes in a Barbarian shed. You really need to take a long, hard look at yourselves. Yeah. Kalex pound for pound might be the greatest engineering outfit on earth at the moment. Yeah. Like it, the, is, um, it, it is incredible what that little team has been able to do in, in everything they do. Everything they do is brilliant. Yeah. It's giving me like vibes of a Japanese video game giant in like the 90s or the 2000s and like someone from out west comes up with a great idea and it's like, well, this is awesome, but we didn't come up with it in our Japanese headquarters. So this sucks. Dude, I fuck. I would have loved Sonic Extreme on Sega Saturn. I know. (laughs) (laughs) The Cowlitz Honda, the Sonic Extreme of MotoGP bikes, except we actually (laughs) get to see what it's like. Yeah, we get we we get to play it. Oh, yeah, it's it's incredible. I mean, we not everybody pays attention to the lower classes, but the way they've dominated Moto Two for the better part of the decades, where the point where they've now driven Suter single handedly out of the sport. You forget Mark Marquez when he won his Moto Two World Title did it on a Suter back in twenty twelve. Since then, Calex has completely taken over and now runs Moto Two. Eight world championship titles in nine years. Moto2, world champion, Kalitz. Again, rating off their official website where they have Moto2 in big letters and the two is inside the last O. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. They 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 pretty much are now the dominant chassis provider in Moto2 and has been for a decade. They're that good. Um, they, can, they know how to build motorcycles, 120%. And... Yeah, it's no coincidence at the moment they tied it up with they tied up with Honda. There's been a pulse for the first time in maybe three years. Yeah, there's the, more. The, the, there needs to be more, but it's a step in the right direction, and that is that in itself, politically, is a huge gain for Honda in their relationship with Mark Marquez. Yeah, because I mean, if you know how these teams are run, especially um, within Yamaha and Honda, the Japanese manufacturers. It's been a long time since they've taken any step like this. Honda is legendarily stubborn when it comes to doing everything in-house. I mean, they didn't switch out from Showa suspension to Olin's when it was clearly the way to go. They didn't want to switch tire manufacturers. They didn't want to switch electronics partners. They don't take decisions like outsourcing the entire frame of the bike chassis and swing arm out to another company unless they know they're in the shit yeah this this was desperate this was a desperation heave in the uh in the grand scheme of things and uh it's working but it's still not a good look for as cam quite rightly says one of the biggest engineering firms in the world today But uh, hey, Honda need more, but it's certainly a step in the right direction. And the, uh, the shambling, decrepit corpse has a pulse. That's it. Should we talk about a brand new segment on the show? I like to call Stewards Watch. I'm walking Yo! out of the room. I'm out. I'm oh, out. so all replace right. me on the show for the Indy 500. Get get your ass back in here. Um, <laughs> I don't wanna. But we got a brand new segment, Cam. Let's talk all about it. Like, What's it about? That, 
stewards stewards and how bad they are well how good they are why would kyle novak do this oh yeah like this once again the stewarding talk rung quite predominantly over this race there was a few incidents that are worth talking about and i wanted to evaluate them and see where we're at um with how they handled it now the big one was during the race with Maverick Vinyardes and Peko Banyar clashing at the Blue S's at the back end of the track. It seems to me that Maverick probably just didn't see where Banyar was on the outside of him. They hit each other. Maverick loses control of his bike. Uh, they make contact again, and they both go down in, in, in the back end of the track. Almost came to blows. There was, there was some shoving involved from Banyaya in the in the. We almost had to bring back Fight Club for the week. Um, but which was uh, crazy because like one of them was down um, down in the gravel, like a little bit shaken up, and then like the other dude just like comes up and like, "Hey, yo, what the fuck?" Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was Banyaya on the ground with Vinyalas coming over. To uh, well, call him number one among other things. Right, I'm going and for. I was going for first. <laughs> yeah, uh, he was showing he was going for pole position. Um, no, it was it was it was a bit of an argy bargy. Um, luckily, I think cooler heads prevailed. They by the time they got back to the garage, they'd shaken hands on it, and I think everybody just calmed down at that point. I mean, it's very rare. For Maverick Vinales to have a, an incident in a race like that. I mean, I think third it was only crash on the Aprilia. Third crash on the Aprilia ever. Yeah, <laughs> but he's been there for over two years now. It is or nearly two years now. It's crazy. Um, he just doesn't crash the motorcycle very often. He's very good at knowing where the limit is. Um, yeah, especially the rev limit. Well, yes, especially that. Um, no further action was called from the stewards. Right, Cole. Uh, having rewatched this, God, like a dozen times from different angles. Yeah, I think it's probably the right call for racing incident because both, basically it was, two, it ended up being two riders going for the same piece of track. Now I'm, I don't just watch MotoGP. I also watch, um, if we want to know how niche I get with motorsports, um, FIM Endurance World Championship. Oh wow, that is niche. Um, and actually, we've done Suzuka eight-hour shows before. It's not that niche. Yeah, but that, but that's almost like a, an event in and of itself. Um, and one of the things that I notice, you know, watching that and then watching this is that Banyaya going around the outside, even like oftentimes you just don't see riders go for that, even when they're lapping like Super Sport six hundred traffic. Because you just don't expect someone to come around the outside, and you, you you can't look over your shoulder to go to look for them. Um. So yeah, two riders went for the same piece of track. They hit each other. They both went down. Yeah, just one of those crummy deals. I think I I, I agree. I think it was just coincidental contact and nothing more. Really, I don't think there was anything malicious about what Maverick did. I think he was just trying to take the race in line for the corner and probably just didn't see where Banyaya was in relation to him, um, both fighting for the same piece of road. And uh, I, I think uh, Maverick was just maybe overcompensating a little bit for running wide the previous corner, and they hit each other. And like, I think like if I were to apportion blame, I'd probably go 60-40 Mav. Yeah. I wouldn't, I don't, I wouldn't think it's worth a penalty, honestly. Agreed. Um, 
The other one which I do think was missed and I think was a bit silly was Alexis Spargaro bumping into Alex Marquez in the sprint and murdered him. him. Straight up killed this dude. Yeah, like like barged him off at the second half of the chicane down the hill and uh put Marquez out of the points. I think it was that in sixteenth afterwards. Um when they were fighting, I think, for seventh or so. And that was that was also called no further action. So um is is that one right? No, I'm gonna I'm gonna abstain from this one because I didn't see it. Um, I do have it. I do. We can get a live reaction from one Mister O'Connell. Yeah, just 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 DM it to me, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I know. Uh, I did see the other two that we'll get to talk about, including the the scariest one. Yeah. Um. Okay. I'm sending this to you in Discord. Uh, wonderful. Thank you. Um, via the uh the wonderful service that uh shall not be named. Oh, oh, this uh, I did see this. So I'm uh, I'm watching Cordero, and then there's a oh yeah, that's uh that's a little bit aggressive. I'm I'm not gonna lie to you. I think that is like two billion percent a penalty for a Spargaro. <laughs> oh, that but, it was... but that was called no further action. Yeah, sorry. That's a penalty all day. That's at least a position drop, man. Yeah, I, I t- this is the one I find bizarre because I think, spoiler alert, all the other major ones were right. Um, I think that because um, the, uh, the other two that were on my list was was Bez ran it, running Marquez wide at Garage Ver, put him onto the long lap penalty loop. Bez... I think even before, I mean, Bez was given a position drop for that, and even Bez admitted after the race, yeah, went too far, um, missed my breaking point, was unfair to Mark. I had no problem giving it back. Um, he said it was the right decision. Um, I had no issue with that, and I agree for the most yeah. part. Um, and then the other one was Alex Marquez, who during the first lap of the Grand Prix took a dive at the bottom of uh, La Chapelle late, and it was effectively a punt move because it put Zarco and Brad Binder wide, and it completely ruined Brad Binder's race. It dropped Binder down to like 18th place off off the start, and it Binder was struggling to get up the field again afterwards. And so Marquez you, was for given those a, of you, yeah. for those of you who watch car racing, maybe maybe this is your first MotoGP episode. It's everyone's first, you know. Um, if you watch the 2011 24 Hours of Le Mans. It's basically what Alan McNish did <laughs> right? that oh, caused no. his gargantuan first hour accident. It was, he just fired it up the gap and it was not, there was not enough room there for his bike. Oh, he was geez. never going to make the corner without using up those on his outside. Uh, well, okay. At least, uh, okay. At least that was the worst that Alex Marquez's Grand Prix gotten. Oh no. Oh no. Uh, God, I wish. Um, pour, pour, uh, pour, pour a drink for uh, Dre's brother, the uh, resident Alex Marquez fan. Shit has been rough the last couple weekends. Yeah, my, my, my man was miserable off the, off the back of that Grand Prix, and he almost threw a gasket when he found out that Alex Marquez was given a, a free-place grid penalty um, as a result of that incident after the race. And... Yeah, kind of hard to argue with this one. I think that 
the, the notes described it as overly ambitious. And I think that is actually a fair way of wording it because it was overly ambitious. Um, he came from a long way back, didn't get anywhere near enough alongside Zarco to justify where, where his bike was on, was on track. And he's punted two dudes wide off the opening lap and harmed their races quite significantly. So I'm largely okay with that. And if it, if we are going to go down the road of hitting lap one incidents, then this is valid. Yeah. So don't have a problem with that. I was just, I'm just glad that, you know, you know, we, we didn't have something much more catastrophic when both Marquez and Luca Marini hit the decker later on in that same race. Yeah. That was very, very lucky that we didn't have anyone go down and be struck by an oncoming bike. Genuinely. Yeah. It's uh it's a lot. Uh, honestly, for the most part, I think, Spencer and the gang got got this one largely right. I didn't have a big problem with any of the incidents involved, except for the uh, Spargaro and Marquez one. But a part of me also thinks with that incident, isn't this what you guys wanted? <laughs> like, no. uh, what, what, uh, unleash your hashtag upon the world, Mr. Harrison. Knock Wappy, my new hashtag that I have Knock described. And it, 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 it's an acronym. For? It rolls right off the tongue. And it, it 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 stands for no one knows what a penalty is anymore. I know what a penalty should be. Like, and if you want more walking proof of that, during the sprint, Francesco Bagnaia raised his arm in protest at Mark Marquez for passing him as clean as a whistle. <laughs> Mark got near another rider. Race ban. Race ban. <laughs> like Bandai raised his arm. Like, what, didn't you do this exact same move to Jack Miller at her ref two weeks ago? It was less aggressive than that one was. Right. And I was, I was like, oh no, this is this is terrible. And I was like, ha. I literally tweeted out. I said, Banyaya complained about a clean pass from Marquez. We've come full circle. No one knows what a penalty is. I'm going to hashtag this into a bit. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, and a thank you, Racing Stewards of the World, for ruining my program. Oh. I'm sick of it. It's a lot, and it's not ideal. But like I said, I don't think anybody knows what a penalty is anymore, so... Um, good luck figuring that one out, folks, over the course of the season, because I got nothing. Um, finally, because it's only fair, and I, I did love that Dorna did a special version of their lightbox intro for the 1,000th Grand Prix. Um, some of the classic footage in the background was really cool to see. I like little things like that as a broadcasting nerd. Anyway, to celebrate the 1,000th MotoGP weekend, what have been your favorite moments in your time as a MotoGP fan 1,000 races in? Mark Marquez's rookie season. Oh, from wow. Just like, you know, him coming on the scene, this 20-year-old super phenom coming in, having success like straight out of the box. Fit, wins the second race, wins the championship first time out. This is the dude who's sliding on his knees and his elbows. That's so much fun. That lives in me. Uh, I think we're all in agreement that Phillip Island 2015 is like high up on our list. Oh, Maybe yeah. the greatest single race I've ever watched in any series. An incredible Grand Prix. One of the, um, it's, it's, it had everything. It had everything. Everything you could ask for. Dead Seagulls. Championship Narratives. War at the front. 
Yeah, uh, and the final seed being planted in an incident that would later change the entire trajectory of the sport forever. Um, I heard someone wrote a book about it. Might have done. Um, <laughs> um, uh, Esteril 2006, for me, <clears throat> is right up there. Um, Esteril 2006, I still say, is one of the most important, probably the most important MotoGP race of all time. Not be just because of the action because it's a 10 out of 10 race on action alone it's an incredible race but beyond that you had tony elias winning which he would be the last man to win on a satellite bike for almost a decade you'd you'd have to wait nearly 10 years before jack miller won in assen before we'd see another independent winner in moto gp and he got paid in gold for it Oh yeah, like Toby Moody's all time on... great commentary calls. <laughs> Toby Moody and Julian Ryder are having fun with that one where he talks about because uh, uh, because remember the, the only reason they're making those jokes is because the factory Hondas, Danny Pedrosa and Nicky Hayden at the time had taken each other out early doors, um, effectively ruining Honda's entire championship. And the jokes that were making on the commentary box was. Tony Elias will pay you a million dollars to win this race, and we will pay you on gold, and the briefcase will be under the podium. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And he did it. Uh, 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 the joke keeps coming up over the course of the race. If you listen to it, it's like, because Julian Ryder goes, what the nomination of notes would Sir like? Um, <laughs> <laughs> doesn't, like Toby's like, doesn't matter. Gold watches, uh, you know. <laughs> and after the race, they literally say, so um, if Tony Elias wins this race, will there suddenly magically be a Honda available for him next year? And it was like, I think at this point, Toby, you can back the wagon up. Um, <laughs> it was a hilarious race. There was other little things in there as well. Kenny Roberts Jr.'s last stand. Kenny Roberts Jr., who was less than a year away from retiring from MotoGP, very nearly won that race on his own brand of Suzuki, which would have been remarkable if if Kenny Roberts Jr. had pulled that off. My first love as a bike rider, I loved I loved Kenny Jr. when I was growing up, and uh, he was so so good. And it was that was basically his last real chance to win a Grand Prix with Valentino in that freeway fight with him and Tony Elias. The fact that we saw the first ever prototype in that race, the Ilmore, yeah, with first eight hundred, your first eight hundred with uh, Ilmore and and Gary McCoy, and in, in, in a moment that would shape the very future of the sport because Ilmore had an open garage. They were like. They they allowed for wild cards and one-off prototypes, and they there was the first 800 cc prototype. They had an open. Imagine that in motorsport now, an open motorsport garage where you could just say, "Look, here's our bike. Have a look. You know, have a look under the hood. See for yourself what, what where you think the sport is going." And that would be essentially the model that would become the 800 cc prototype era. Yeah. Um, it was incredible, and they scored a point. They even though they were three laps down, they got Gary McCoy back out there, and they scored a point which is crazy um, on a bike that was at the time several seconds slower than the four strokes. Um, all of that in mind, for me, it's one of the very great races in MotoGP history. Um, one of the most important races in MotoGP history because it defined many years. And of course, Tony Elias winning that race in the closest margin of victory, well, joint closest margin of victory, in MotoGP history, just two thousandths of a second, the length of a CD cover. I actually worked out the distance um, using time to work it out. It was literally about the length of a CD cover 
about 30, about 30 centimeters over the line between him and Valentino Rossi. And not that we knew it at the time, it would be the incident that cost Valentino world title number 10. Whoops. <sighs> which brings me to mine, which is um, going out of my way for the final race in 06 in Valencia to see the last American world champion, Nicky Hayden, claim that crown. Um, because I had been, I had watched for a couple of years and I had met him a couple of years prior as a little kid. Didn't realize what it would actually mean to me later on. Um, and he pulled it off. I remember losing my fucking mind when Valentino went down. Oh, gotcha. Losing my shit along with, I think most of Europe. Europe stopped turning for a good five minutes when that happened. They were like, oh no. Does not compute. Rossi blew it. <laughs> There's no other way of describing it. Rossi blew it. He tried too hard and he crashed. And like seeing the emotions of Nicky Hayden win that world title in 2006 was magic. It was the first time anybody not named Valentino Rossi had won a world title since 2000. And yeah. and he ended the five-year reign of terror that Valley had had on the sport. And Seeing the emotions of him, he would burst into tears. His, you know, his dad, you know, his dad and his family were all down there. I, f- I don't think they actually thought they were going to win that world title. I think deep down they probably knew that it was Rossi's to lose. So when they actually did win the title, and it all just comes out, it's a beautiful, powerful image, and oh, it's stayed in my mind ever since. And I've, I've spoken personally about my bond with Nikki Hayden given well, the, the the luxury and the pleasure of being able to interview him a, a year before he passed away for Bike Live and I will never ever ever forget that image of him winning that world title in 2006 he was a, he was a not only an incredible talent the 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 flag bearer for American two-wheeled motorsport for a good decade he, he, you know looking back you know now hmm. He is the last, really the last person to come from the American, you know, motorcycle ladder. Yeah. Go to MotoGP and be successful. Yeah. Um, he, no one ever did really after that. Yeah. And and now, I mean, Moto America is practically, you know, who cares about Moto America at this point? Yeah. Um, He was, for the foreseeable future, the last American world champion. And there's a very good reason why on my own motorcycle helmet. It's a little '69 sticker on there. It's a, it's, 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 it's. He represented an entire era of the AMA ladder and the American representation in the sport. But not only that, he was universally beloved by all. Valentino Rossi has had beef with every major world champion and elite rider you can think of in the top flight in the twenty year in the twenty years of his top flight career. The one man that he didn't have any beef with, and the one man who he tipped the hat to in terms of respect to beating him for a world title was Nicky Hayden, because he couldn't hate on Nicky Hayden. He couldn't have a bad word to say about. He was was so so disgustingly likable. Valentino Rossi could not pull beef from the ether with this dude. No, he couldn't do it. He was just like, no, I tipped my hat to him, I shook his hand, and I said congratulations, because he's such a nice guy, and he was... he. They were teammates. They were teammates. uh, Rossi's last year at Honda. Yeah. Like they were 
There was no bitterness between them whatsoever. And he was universally loved by all. The fact that I literally had to watch BT Sports coverage and Susie Perry was in tears talking about, you know, how close she was with Nikki and the family and how he was always smiling, always happy, always positive, always a gem. Um, and no one had ever had a bad word to say about him. Goes to show you just how important Nikki Hayden was to this sport. And or I'll he, tell you, he's I'll so tell you this he's for so free. so sadly missed. I'll tell you this for free. I uh, I wouldn't be the motorcycle racing and indeed motorsport fan that I am today were it not for him. And, I wouldn't uh, be the journalist I, I am today if it wasn't for him. And uh, I miss him terribly. Yeah, so do I. We all do. I got nothing else to add to that. I it's, agree. It's uh, it's a beautiful thing. I mean. Even I, like, I, I completely agree with RJ as well that as much as I've grown up with a lot of incredible talents, I, I miss Casey Stoner at the highest level. C- Casey was so fucking good. Here's a favorite. Uh, every single corner ever done around Phillip Island by Casey Stoner. Yes. Art. Yes. Yes. Fucking art. What a freak. What a talent. Oh my God. Casey, Casey Stoner was remarkable. I mean, it's so sad that his body failed him as well as some of the you know the political nature of the sport itself but god when we had him we were lucky to have him for as long as we did because casey was so special um you know pedrosa and lorenzo who were incredible talents in their own right what what a breath of fresh air it was to have pedrosa back at back at her f just a couple of weeks ago still that dude it's just a reminder that a man who was five foot two and 95 pounds soaking wet was one of the greatest bike riders to ever walk this earth um which is a remarkable accomplishment now and you know i i I didn't fuck with jorge on a personal level but you have to appreciate what an incredible bike rider jorge lorenzo was in his own right the only man who really took the fight to valentino at yamaha um and beat him multiple times but i mean Anytime, you know, front running, front running races aren't really supposed to be exciting. Right. But you watch Jorge Lorenzo in full rhythm on a early thousand CC Yamaha, and it is just a, a thing of beauty. 100%. And, and as RJ alluded to, Mark Marquez, I've said it before and I will say it again. Valentino Rossi showed the world how to ride a motorcycle. Mark Marquez took that guide and ripped it up in front of him like a world's strongest man routine, tearing the yellow pages apart and said to the world, no, no, this is how you ride a motorcycle. Um, On on the opposite side of that, where you see, you know, Lorenzo so controlled, so smooth on the bike. You know, practically drawing his lines through the corners. Hammer and butter, baby. Hammer and butter. And then, the, and then there's Mark Marquez, who, if Jorge Lorenzo is a scalpel, um, Mark Marquez is a chainsaw. Yeah, like he's, he's smooth like butter. Pure and violence. And carrying apex speed. Marquez is in his helmet in Spanish saying, Turn, you fucking slut! Um, <laughs> um, just, to his motorcycle. Sheer, I mean, that final, it, it, to as a crowning achievement for Phillip Island 2015 as a race, the final lap of that race is everything (laughs) Mark Marquez is as a rider where he is over a second back from Lorenzo and Lorenzo, again, one of the greatest front runners in the history of motorsport. If you give him clear track, he will run away. 
Mark Marquez passed him in a rage. (laughs) That's crazy. There's a couple of Lorenzo adjacent moments that came to mind when I'm thinking, like, obviously, like, the pass at the end of Catalonia 2009. Oh, Um, God. I watched the documentary Faster on Netflix once. This is back in a time when Netflix hadn't completely jumped the shark. Uh, the, the entire intro sequence of that film is just breaking down and setting the scene of Valentino Rossi making that final lap, final quarter pass that nobody thought could, could be done. It's taken his lunch money. And also because for some reason 2013 was very special to me, the day that the weekend that Jorge Lorenzo broke his collarbone, flew out, got patched back up and finished the race. Oh, I think it was acid. Like they were promoting the Superman movie, so you'd always have like these photos of like Jorge Lorenzo riding in front of Superman posters. And isn't that appropriate? Yeah, with his collarbone pinned and screwed back together hours prior. Um, ow, owie, yikes. Um, roll it back a little earlier. Um, me, notable Valentino Rossi fan. Uh, (laughs) Um, Phillip Island 2003. Oh, you thought this was me trying? No, this is me trying. Frightened. <laughs> 100% Valentino Rossi throwing down the weights and just riding the fuck off down the road. Yeah, we are having to make up a 10-second time penalty and winning by 15 anyway. I was going to say, he, he he's like, hey, you can penalize me another another five. I won't be mad about it. <laughs> to this day, it's the one race Valentino Rossi admitted he was at 100% from the moment the flag dropped. <sighs> in, 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 incredible drama. I'd, I'd like to throw one more in there as well. Uh, Assen, tw- 20, I think it's 2019. In Assen, a race that had over a hundred overtakes in it, where Valentino Rossi French kissing the back of Jorge Lorenzo's bike barely made the top ten. Pure chaos. I'll uh, I'll end on this one. A man's bike fails him, going down the main straight at Coda. He runs back to the pits, hops on the spare bike, and bulldozes the entire field. For pole position. <laughs> if you have never watched Mark Marquez's 2015 Coda pole lap, oh, you're Lord doing yourself a disservice. Go watch it. Stop, stop listening to us. What are you doing? Go on YouTube. It's up. Listen to it. Watch it's up it. There. Yeah, it's 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 one of the most remarkable scenes I've ever seen in sport. <laughs> the man has oh. parked his bike on the side of the road hopped over the fence, ran down the pit lane, got on the spare, and with one hot lap and two minutes to go in the session, qualifies on pole with a new lap record. It's almost the fastest ever lap of the circuit in the Americas. You know, I'd actually forgot about it, and I should have picked a better qualifying one, so give me a mulligan on this. Bruno 2019. (laughs) I didn't watch this one live. I did. I, I, <laughs> and I'm angry that I didn't because I woke up and I looked at it and I'm just like, why is the decimal in the wrong place? But it's you know. not. <laughs> but it was. <laughs> when, when Marquez outqualified the field by two and a half seconds, and like I was so up in arms, I woke up my sleeping ex girlfriend on my lap at the time. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's just ridiculous. 
ridiculous. It's it was utterly, utterly ridiculous. I hope I'm just like, hey, qualify. I'll qualify by two. T- no, no, no. Oh god, it's two seconds. No, 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 no. It's uh, <laughs> and it was pouring in the final corner. It, it, it's like The Simpsons, where where Homer's trying to gain three hundred pounds to, to to become disabled, and then Bart Simpson goes, uh, "Homer, towel rack." <laughs> <laughs> that is that's a reference i've yet <laughs> oh so many incredible moments please send them in tell us like tell us more tweet us at motorsport underscore 101 some of your favorite moto tp moments over uh over the last uh thousand grand prix weekends we'd love to hear them um they're some of ours to, to get you started um as you can probably imagine, there won't be a Formula One podcast next week for obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, like we'll, we'll, what we'll do next week is we are going we are going to wrap up all of the first month, the first half of the month of May. So we'll be talking about Indies Grand Prix and uh, Alex Polo uh, unzipping his trousers and laying his meat on the table. Um, hey yo, well, well, <laughs> hey yo! Well, look uh, now, now fired coach Doc Rivers it always reminds you: don't play with your meat. No, and uh, Alex Polo certainly did not do that at the at the Indy GMR Grand Prix. Well, by that point, we'll also know what the grid will look like for the Indy 500, so we'll talk a little bit about that, preview some of the extra runners and riders, and try and, fi- and obviously talk about who gets bumped, because it's a 34-car field, so someone is not making the big dance. Who will that be? We'll have to wait and see. Um, so that'll be us on next week's show um, so we'll wrap up all of the month of May then. Um, as mentioned, um, one more time, our best wishes to everyone in the Emilia-Romagna region in, over in Imola. Um, Alpha Tauri has launched a fundraiser for their local town to help the relief effort. We'll put the link to that in the description. So if you can, please donate if you can. Um, and if you can show any support their way, that would be wonderful. But uh That'll do it for this edition of the Motorsport 101 podcast. I've been Dre Harrison. They've been RJ O'Connell and Cam Buckley. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next time. Sayonara. Later, y'all. And I can't wait to see what future Sitzer's head coach, Mike Budenholzer, brings to the table for this <laughs> Man, that... uh. I, I, I can't add anything to that without saying something that will get me kicked off this podcast.